Black people have been fighting for their rights for hundreds of years. And so when you talk about Black Lives Matter, I think it's important to even look further back as early as 1619 to see how people of African descent have been trying to over and over again assert this claim and this point that we're still trying to convey to people, which is that Black Lives Matter. This is a show about power and money and the people who utilize those things to influence American democracy, and in some cases, the global order of things. But there's an extremely powerful structure in place we haven't yet directly addressed. Systemic racial inequality rooted in white supremacy. This episode isn't about that power. It's about the people who are fighting it. The bottom line is, you know, there really are four branches of government. I mean, when you were in school, they told you there were three. There's the, the executive, the judiciary, and the legislative, but there are actually four. And the fourth branch is the people. It is the most important branch. It is the one around which most of those other branches live or die. The people. The people have power. That is such an important reminder, especially listening to this show, that hits you over the head with stories about the megalomania and omnipotence of the ultra-powerful. After a black man in Minneapolis was killed during an arrest in May, about 25 million Americans of all races took to the streets to protest for police accountability and racial justice. And the protests continue. The rallying cry and the name of the organization at the forefront of the protests are simple. Black Lives Matter. So today, something a little different. Who is Black Lives Matter? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we analyze power by looking at the stories of people who have it. This is a story that goes back to the very beginnings of America, but I want to start in 2020, in Minneapolis. Miski Noor is from Minneapolis. They're an organizer with the Black Lives Global Network and a leader in Black Lives Matter Minneapolis. One of the questions I've gotten a lot is, why Minneapolis? Why now? And a part of it is the history of sustained disruptive action and the history of that. Um, and part of why there is a history of that is because uh, the Minneapolis Police Department has a history of murdering Black people and folks of color in the streets. David Smith, Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, and George Floyd. George Floyd, he was a security guard and truck driver in Minneapolis. He had kids, grandkids, and put out some music as Big Floyd. He was 46 years old. On May 25th, he goes to a grocery store to buy a pack of cigarettes with what the cashier believes to be a counterfeit $20 bill. The cashier calls the police. Officer Derek Chauvin is among those who respond to the call. Chauvin had 18 complaints against him at the time, two of which had resulted in official discipline. The encounter between Chauvin and Floyd ended in Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Floyd kept repeating, I can't breathe. He called for his mother. By the end of it, Floyd was dead.
One month later, on June 22nd, Minneapolis Police Chief Madeira Arredondo issued a statement. Mr. George Floyd's tragic death was not due to a lack of training. The training was there. Chauvin knew what he was doing. According to the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Chauvin had taken training on the dangers of positional asphyxiation in 2014, which was required after a 2013 settlement with the family of David Cornelius Smith, a handcuffed black man who died in 2010 after police pinned him face down. Chief Arredondo, in his statement on the death of George Floyd, continued, The officers knew what was happening. One intentionally caused it, and the others failed to prevent it. This was murder. It wasn't a lack of training. Murder. This pain, this rage, this horror is what Black Lives Matter was born out of, eight years before George Floyd's death. In 2012, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin walked through the Sanford, Florida gated community where he lived with his father. He'd gone to a convenience store to buy a snack. He was followed by George Zimmerman a 28-year-old man with a history of calling the police on black men he saw around the neighborhood. Eventually, Zimmerman shot and killed him. More than a year later, Zimmerman was found not guilty of second-degree murder and manslaughter. He walked free. You know, when Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me uh, 35 years ago. After seeing the news, Alicia Garza, a 31-year-old Oakland activist and poet, wrote a Facebook post called A Love Letter to Black People. She wrote, The sad part is there's a section of America who is cheering and celebrating right now. And that makes me sick to my stomach. We gotta get it together, y'all. By the way, Stop saying we are not surprised. That's a damn shame in itself. I continue to be surprised at how little black lives matter. And I will continue that. Stop giving up on black life. Alicia Garza's friend and fellow activist Patrice Cullors commented on the post. Hashtag black lives matter. Patrice Cullors told reporters at Telesor the story herself. Myself and Alicia Garza were over Facebook. We were like just trying to process out loud on social media with other black people around what the hell just happened. And so we were going back and forth and she writes like a love letter to black folks like, hey, listen, like, I love y'all. And I'm going to always be shocked when they clearly hate us. Um, I'm gonna never um, numb myself because a lot of black folks were like, this is what was gonna happen, what did we expect? And so I wrote her and I was like, thank you so much. And then she wrote Black Lives Matter and then I hashtagged it. Literally within the day, um, I don't even remember how it became like huge, but people started hashtagging it, like Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And then by Monday, I was getting on the radio to talk about this movement called Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and I was like, y'all, Alicia and I are creating this project called Black Lives Matter. We're hoping that more black people than we could ever imagine will join. Um, and then I think by that week, Opal Tometi, the third founder, she's a communications person, and she was like, uh, y'all gotta build an infrastructure for this. Although Black Lives Matter is formally decentralized, it has founders, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi, three women, activists all, who brought diverse perspectives and interconnected networks to the project. 
But the moment that Black Lives Matter emerged in is important. Dr. Keisha Blaine has been called one of the most innovative and influential young historians of her generation and is an editor of the Washington Post's Made by History section. When we think about Black Lives Matter as a movement, it's always important to remember that it emerged within the context of the Obama administration. This is not coincidental. When President Barack Obama was elected, some people tried to convince Americans racism was over. Like, here's John Bolton, one of the architects of the war in Iraq. Since, since we are about to elect the first African-American as president, it is a very significant historical fact. And I take it, therefore, around the world, criticism of the United right. States for being a racist nation will now stop, right? Barack Obama's election was meaningful and symbolic, but it's telling that it's under his presidency that Black Lives Matter emerged to get people to see that there's a problem here of police violence, certainly, of police killings, and in the case of Trayvon Martin, being killed by someone who wasn't even a police officer. But the point is that they felt empowered, empowered to, to take this young man's life, because at the end of the day, uh, it all came back to the anti-Black racism that structures and, and frames our society. And the movement has been trying since then, certainly, to get Americans to, to understand that and to change it. There was something else that would change how the rest of America understood the experience of Black Americans. In the last few years, the smartphone has been the tool that has opened the eyes of America to what is happening to Black folks. That tool has been a game changer for revealing what Black existence actually looks like. And Black people see themselves in it, and white people are beginning to ask the question, well, what am I going to do about that? Because this is totally, this can't go on. That's Vince Warren. My name is Vince Warren. I'm the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights based in New York. And we are a legal and advocacy organization that's been around for like more than 50 years. And we work with deeply with social movements to take on whatever major political intractable justice problems are of the day. I first became aware of the Black Lives Matter movements during the killing of Trayvon Martin in, in Florida. And a number of young black organizers were really thinking about how to get that message out to broader audiences, not just in the old school way, but through social media. And they emerged as not only just the leaders, but the visionaries of the way to frame the modern state of black genocide with respect to police. When she was younger, Black Lives Matter co-founder Alicia Garza wanted to be an architect. She liked the idea of, quote, figuring out how to create something from nothing, she told The Guardian in 2015. On C-SPAN Book TV, Garza talked about what it means to build something. There is a science and an art. <laughs> and, you know, from the time when Patrice and Opal and I created the Black Lives Matter uh, network, right, which started from a series of social media platforms and grew into a network with chapters all over the world, um, we didn't have a roadmap. We really relied on instinct and we relied on relationships. And we paid attention to what was going on and moving in the world. 
And I hope that doesn't feel or sound amorphous, but that's literally the secret sauce is um, who you're in relationship to, um, what they're working on and what you're working on. Um, also, frankly, um, what time it is in the country, right? And um, your willingness to keep pushing things forward. Black Lives Matter is a movement that began with a love letter and a hashtag following George Zimmerman's acquittal in 2013. And accountability, or lack thereof, has been central from the start. Eric Garner was killed on Staten Island in 2014 by Officer Daniel Pantaleo, who used an illegal chokehold on Garner. The incident was filmed by a bystander, Ramsey Orta. In the video, Garner can be heard crying out, I can't breathe, 11 times. Orta's footage was widely seen and in part sparked major protests in New York City and beyond, where crowds chanted, I can't breathe. Pantaleo faced no jail time. A grand jury declined to indict him, and he remained on the NYPD payroll until 2019, when he was fired. Eric Garner was still dead. When it comes to holding police officers accountable, it is virtually impossible to have the police officer prosecuted. What they did in Ferguson and what they did in Staten Island with Daniel Pantaleo, who killed Eric Garner, was that prosecutors, you can, you can indict a ham sandwich. I mean, they can literally indict all of us for just getting out of the wrong side of the bed in the morning pretty easily. But what they did in those cases, they were like, well, we're just going to put all the evidence out there and just let the grand jury decide. That never happens. That was a cowardly chicken shit move that was really designed to move back and to get away from the political pressure that they were under. And they knew that if they were going to do that, that it would not end up with indictments anyway. That's my view. So it's, it's very, very hard. It's not something that you can count on at all in the orderly pursuit of accountability. It was the lack of accountability in St. Louis that got Miski Noor organizing in Minneapolis. Eric Garner was killed in July 2014. Less than a month later in August, Michael Brown, an 18-year-old black man, was shot and killed by a white police officer, Darren Wilson, in Ferguson, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. New York City and Ferguson saw massive protests. Black Lives Matter had America's attention. Some of the first Black Lives Matter Minneapolis meetings were happening um, in my living room. And I think the first time I heard about it, I think it was the murder of Mike Brown and folks rising up in Ferguson. And I remember really seriously considering going to Ferguson and wanting to be there. And so when the movement popped off in Minneapolis, one of my roommates was a part of starting to build to uh, help to facilitate Black Lives Matter Minneapolis organizing. And what it felt like was somebody had just pressed the go button for Black liberation. And so, yeah, feeling like it, it was time to go and that, that everybody was moving for Black liberation is really what brought me in. And so started organizing from there and haven't actually stopped since. Black Lives Matter has a decentralized structure that empowers organizers everywhere. Meaning that Miski Noor is responding to events in Ferguson, but organizing in Minneapolis. Alicia Garza reflected on the decentralized and localized structure of the movement in 2015. There is a shift happening from a, a particular model of civil rights advocacy into a new one. And we are in that in-between 
state, which means that there's lots that is possible about transforming the way that we um, organize at a local, state, and national, and international level. Uh, but it's also changed uh, how we relate to leadership and what leadership looks like. Um, and so you'll see, and I'm sure you've heard over time, uh, that many people within this movement don't identify one leader, right? Most folks say we're a leaderful movement, which is really different than saying we don't have leaders. And that I wanna make that important distinction. New leaders are possible, right? So um, really pushing against this idea that in order for there to be leadership for black folks, that it needs to be like a black preacher, right? <laughs> um, but that instead it can be you know, a black single mother or it can be a black transgender woman or it can be uh, a, a black immigrant person, right? So lots of different types of leadership are possible and have come to the fore during this period. Vince Warren also noticed something different about Black Lives Matter and the women steering it. When you're working with social movements and as long as our organization has been, you begin to see that there are these tipping points and energy and momentum that's being built around an idea. And new movements or building new social movements is a very hard thing because you just can't come up with a hashtag and expect it to be so. And you know, protests and social movements are two totally different things. It actually takes years and years and years of organizing and moving people. But what I began to see was that some of the leaders of Black Lives Matter, people who were very good at starting to create momentum around energy and issues, they also didn't give a crap. They were not gonna be writing a lot of letters to Congress complaining about the problem. They wanted to shut shit down. They wanted to take things over. That energy was really, really, really key in, for a lot of us in saying that this is a group of folks that we need to be able to get behind. Black Lives Matter co-founder Opal Tometi discussed what had then become a major national movement with The Atlantic in 2015. So this was actually a racial justice project for black people, knowing that if we were to create a project and a platform and a new way of thinking about what was taking place in our communities, that we would have an opportunity to reframe the conversation mm -hmm. and hopefully create a world where black lives would actually matter. And so it was a number of things. It was a hashtag, it was a platform, and now what we're seeing is that it's actually a network. We have a network of about 30 chapters all across the country and a couple in different country, other countries, right? So in Ghana, in Canada. So it is a real organization. A do, I mean, is there, and I've, is there a hierarchy? Is there a structure? Is there a, I mean, and, and there's no uh, funding for this. I mean, this is all sort of grassroots, spontaneous organization. Right. So it's, it's a grassroots effort. So we are still raising funds. It is a decentralized network. So people are acting on their own at the local level. Mm -hmm. They're making their own campaigns. They're figuring out the strategies that really work for them. They're engaging with elected officials. They're engaging with community members. They're having their own community town halls and healing circles and a range of different activities that make sense for their local context. However, we're also, you know, we're savvy, we're, we're strategic, and we're coordinating ourselves um, at the national level. Mm -hmm. And so there's not only Black Lives Matter that is a, its own organization and its own network, but there's a constellation of social justice organizations across the country. So we're a movement, we're truly a movement of various groups, various uh, community organizations, and so on. By 2015, Black Lives Matter was beginning to be widely acknowledged as the next chapter of the civil rights movement. 
And it's impossible to understand the Black Lives Matter movement without thinking through the long history that precedes it. More on that when we're back. The civil rights movement of the 1960s is passing from living memory, and in some respects, Black Lives Matter is what follows. Representative John Lewis, one of the lions of the civil rights era, died this summer. But before he died, he connected the modern movement to the historical struggle. John Lewis was an extraordinary man and an extraordinary hero. He spent most of his life from the time he was maybe 15, 16 years old, putting himself between black folks and the harm that comes to him. And when he died, he wrote this fantastic op-ed in which he talked about Emmett Till being his George Floyd. And what that meant was in the 1950s, uh, there was a young 14-year-old boy named Emmett Till who went missing from Mississippi. And when he was found eventually, he was, I mean, brutally and grotesquely beaten and tortured. This was clearly by white folks in, in the town. And the story at the time was no one knew what happened. Everybody knows no one knew what was going on. But what ended up happening was there were white folks that beat him up because he was allegedly making a pass at a white woman who years later recanted. But the point of that story is that in a, in a moment of just unbelievable bravery in the midst of pain, Emmett Till's mother decided that she would publicize the pictures of Emmett Till after his death. Uh, and his face was so beaten up, it was it's unrecognizable as a human face. And as painful as that was for her, it embodied exactly how black people were treated. The worst fears that black people live with every day. And also the things that went unseen by most white people. And that his death galvanized what we know historically as the civil rights movement of the 1950s and the 1960s. And in that way, I think John Lewis is telling us that George Floyd's death, like Emmett Till's, should not be in vain. But this is the moment where we see the thing that we hoped never existed. We see it with our own eyes, eight minutes and 46 seconds of death. And this is the moment for people to demand that things like this just don't happen anymore. Emmett Till was killed 65 years ago, in 1955. He was 14. Tamir Rice was killed by police at 12, holding a toy gun. That was 2014. Ayana Monet Stanley Jones was seven when police in riot gear stormed her home, threw a flash grenade at her, and fatally shot her. That was 2010. When we focus on the police killings of children in particular, it just underscores all the more why activists have been emphasizing this message that Black Lives Matter. Because within our society, there's generally a sense, or at least a, a belief or understanding that children are to be protected at all costs. And when it comes to Black children, this is the moment where people cannot escape the conversation about anti-Black racism. So we can talk about adults, right? We can talk about individuals losing their lives. And as we've seen take place time and time again in the media, there are efforts to demonize victims. And so one can, for example, say, well, this particular person was killed by police, but perhaps we can point to the fact that they use drugs or maybe they were involved in in some sort of shady practices as we know 
all of these things should not matter and all of these things should not be factored in when we're talking about an unarmed individual losing their life to police killings. But still, the conversations often take place at a national level where people try to poke holes and say, well, if that person hadn't been rude to the officer, if that person had answered a different way, or if that person had not responded in that particular way, maybe the outcome would be different. When it comes to children, it's harder to make these kinds of claims. It's harder to make these kinds of claims because of the question of innocence, certainly. And when it comes to the killing of a child like uh, Tamir Rice, that's a moment where individuals who might not have wanted to face the reality of how racism shapes uh, the conversation of policing in the United States, that's a moment where they have to step back and what are they going to say? He should not have been in the park that day. He should not have been playing. He should not have just been living as you would expect a young child to live freely. Uh, I think the killings of young people, of, of children, force the conversation and force people to accept, even when they don't want to, that this is not about necessarily interactions with the police or how people speak or respectability politics and all of these things that tend to dominate conversations, but it is about racism. But to really understand this, like Dr. Blaine said at the top of the episode, we have to look further back. Police forces come out of a history of slavery, and when you see it through that lens, you will never ask why there are tensions between police forces and Black communities. Here is where we have to go back to history. And it's one of those situations where I think many Americans would prefer not to talk about the roots of policing. Uh, it's important to know that there was a period in our history where we did not have police forces. That's an important thing to know. And it's also important to know that one of the primary reasons why we do have police forces is because they grew out of a context of slavery. And what do I mean? Well, the earliest police forces on record go back to the 18th century. So within the context of Charleston, South Carolina, for example, one of the earliest groups that emerged in the 1790s uh, was a group called the Charleston City Watch and Guard. And that particular group was one of the earliest formations of what ultimately becomes police forces in the United States. Slave patrols in Charleston outnumbered every single northern city police force. Louis Gerard Clark, a former slave, wrote of the patrols. They are men appointed by the county courts to look after all slaves without a pass. They have almost unlimited power over the slaves. They are the sons of run-down families. They are, emphatically, the servants of servants and slaves of the devil. They are the meanest and lowest and worst of all creation. Like starved wharf rats, they are out nights creeping into slave cabins to see if they have an old bone there, drive out husbands from their own beds, and then take their places. They get up all sorts of pretenses, false as their lying tongues can make them, and then whip the slaves and carry a gory lash to the master for a piece of bread. That group made up of white men in the city of Charleston, their purpose 
was to control the enslaved population. Their purpose was to make sure that black people working outside of the, the, the view, outside of the context of their enslavers, that they would not cause problems, that they would not attempt to run away, that they would not break tools or, or, or do anything to disrupt the process of working within the, the system of slavery. And it's not surprising that this particular group, which ultimately has a 24-hour watch system made up of volunteers who were deeply invested in keeping slavery going and deeply invested in making sure that enslaved people didn't run away because they saw, of course, they saw them as property and they were not interested in, in losing money. These individuals ultimately, by the time slavery is abolished uh, in the South with the passage of the 13th Amendment and with the end of the Civil War, what happens is that police forces, uh, these groups are created and they resemble the same slave patrols that we saw before the Civil War. Richmond, Virginia, for example, introduced a police force only after an 1800 slave uprising. So when you start with slavery and you follow the history all the way to the present, you recognize that if the roots of policing come out of this racist context, how in the world do we imagine that the results, that the outcome would be different? Here's Miski Noor. America has yet to even really fully say, I'm sorry <laughs> for slavery or genocide. So how could anything new be possible without facing that truth, without facing that history, without making right to indigenous communities, black communities, and so many other marginalized communities who have been exploited, maimed, murdered, harmed, killed for the purpose of building up or protecting property and capital in this country, right? And so what does it mean for this country to be like, actually, we do believe in people over profit and property, right? And so what does it mean for this country to have a higher premium on life, on human life, than money? Folks in the movement for Black Lives have been really clear about one thing, and that is that they are not just talking about policing. They're talking about the full range, the full spectrum, the menu optioned uh, white supremacist playbook of the way that black people are dehumanized constantly. Constantly. Research has shown that predominantly non-white residential areas see more air pollution. Even President Trump's Environmental Protection Agency found that people of color are more likely to live near polluters like refineries and manufacturing plants. Homes with black owners are appraised at lower values than identical homes with white owners. And one of the most chilling statistics I've ever read. In the United States, black newborns die at three times the rate of white newborns. The same study found that enormous gap disappears when there are more black doctors. In fact, racial disparities in America are particularly visible in healthcare and have been made even more visible by COVID-19. As of August, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the COVID-19 death rate for Black Americans was 2.1 times higher than that of white Americans. There is a reason why healthcare outcomes for Black people are so much worse than white people, why in terms of mortality rates, maternal mortality rates for Black women are so much higher than white people. And it's because our societal structures 
for education, for healthcare, for housing, were actually not made for black people. And it sounds harsh to say, but the reason why you know that is because all these many years later, in the 50 years after the Great Society, uh, almost 60 years, Great Society program of Lyndon Johnson, black folks have the least access to everything, have the lowest chance of succeeding of anyone, the highest mortality rates, and it's because they cannot access the system because the system is not contemplating them. If you actually think about what it takes to get health care as a low-income person of color, that you have to jump through all sorts of hoops in order to get what's essentially inferior health care from other folks. And that's what the movement is actually focusing on. And when we think connected to invest-divest, it does relate to policing in the following way, that if you're going to be spending less money on police departments and police officers and law enforcement function, that leaves more money to invest in communities where people actually need it. For Vince Warren, this is part of why the articulation of Black Lives Matter, the very phrasing of it, is so, so important. Black Lives Matter is what black people have been saying to white people for 400 years. And so that statement, that framework, that phrasing is geared towards white people to help them understand the way that the world works right now. It's as if our lives don't matter. So we are not listened to. Someone can call the police because they don't like the way that you're walking your dog. Someone can call the police because you're making too much noise. And for many people, that resolves what they see as the problem. And the problem that they see is black folks just living their lives. So while it's a very important framework, and we shouldn't confuse a hashtag with a social movement, the really key piece here is that there are now for everyone to see so many ways in which black lives just do not matter. And then what we're calling for is for folks to imagine what does the world does the world look like? How does it operate when black lives really do matter? What does that look like? It's not about just getting some black faces into power. It's about transforming our system wholly. And part of actually getting there is transforming our relationships with ourselves and with each other so that that actually is possible. Police killings of Black and Brown Americans happen everywhere. And Black Lives Matter is active everywhere. But this year, something changed. Here's Alicia Garza on Book TV. Um, I think you saw people rush out of their homes in the midst of a global pandemic because being isolated in your house while you're watching on television somebody who looks like you being brutally murdered while the officer looks into the camera while he's doing it. Um, it makes you feel so incredibly alone and fearful and um, hopeless. And so why people pour into the streets is to be connected to the energy of other people who are sharing a similar experience. Protests in response to the murder of George Floyd happened in cities across the country. Even one-person protests in small towns across America, where like a guy with a sign stood on the corner asking for honks. And from police budgets to legislation, these protests are successfully pushing for actual policy change. To get a sense of what that looks like and what the future of a policing that would protect and serve all Americans might look like, we're going back to Minneapolis. More. After this, an estimated 15 to 26 million people participated in protests across America this year following the murder of George Floyd. Not just supported, participated. That's like 5 to 8% of the United States population. 
It is extraordinary to me that two-thirds of the people in the United States support Black Lives Matter. And it's another example of the difference between this civil rights movement and previous ones. I was looking over some polls from 1963 and 1964, and in the national polls, 57% of people thought that the civil rights movement was not an important issue. 60% of people thought that, that the Freedom Riders, which were white students that were coming down to get their heads beaten in with black students, that they didn't agree with that approach, that they thought that that was actually harming America and not helping America. So we, we actually see a flip in the polls over the last 60 years around the way that Americans, white people in particular, are seeing black protest. And that's extraordinary. That makes me very happy. It, it, it gives me a lot of of hope, but the challenge with organizers and with all of us that are uh, are supporting this movement is to stay focused and to demand the change that we need and to not get distracted by what is likely going to look like a lot of reconciliation that doesn't solve the problem but makes a lot of people feel better about police-black relationships. In 2016, 40% of Americans supported Black Lives Matter. After George Floyd's death, support grew to nearly 70%. While it has since fallen and breaks down along relatively predictable political lines, it's pretty astounding that for a brief moment, the majority of America was in agreement about something. In Minneapolis, activists are pushing for a referendum that would redefine law enforcement in the city constitution. People are ready to remove the police from our constitution, which is what this charter amendment does. Right now, the police department is the only Minneapolis institution that is written into our charter, which is the city's constitution. And so what this amendment would do is to actually remove them from our city's constitution so that we could begin to really address the scale, the scope, and the power of the police department. And so getting the charter amendment is just the first in many steps to begin to address the limitations of the city of Minneapolis as a system currently so that we can actually begin to start investing in the necessary infrastructure to build the life-affirming institutions we need. And so getting millions and millions of dollars out of the police department so that we can actually fund the things that care for our people, like healthcare, housing, and education, right? And then also begin the process of actually a community engagement so that we can ask our folks and talk to our folks about what makes them safe so that they can, we can begin to create the systems and the infrastructure that can actually keep our people safe and that they can actually see themselves reflected inside because our people truly deserve that. And so the next step is getting the charter amendment on the ballot and then for the next year and actually longer being in a deep, deep community engagement process so that folks can let us know what makes them feel safe on their block. Noor is referring to a Minneapolis ballot proposal to amend the city's charter, quote, pertaining to the creation of a new charter department to provide for community safety and violence prevention and the removal of the police department as a charter department. Since we taped this conversation with Miski Noor, it's begun to look like the proposal won't be on the November ballot after the Minneapolis Charter Commission voted to take additional time to review it. But nobody expected it would be easy. And Nor is committed to having the tough conversations with neighbors about law enforcement and safety that result in real change at the local level. Of course people are scared. They have a right to be scared. Most of our people don't know a world without police. And so it's about honoring their fear and holding that really seriously so that we can actually move forward and ask them, okay, now what is possible? If you were to let go of your fear, 
what could be possible and what does it mean for you to reclaim your imagination and your power to actually not only envision but build the world that you see could actually hold your liberation. And so one of the things that Adrian Marie Brown says about capitalism is one of the worst things, if not the worst thing that it does to us, is that it steals our imagination. And so part of this process is really giving people um, access to their imagination so that they can access their power and know that it is their right to define what safety looks like and that they get to do it together. And so we need every single one of our Minneapolis residents to engage in that because otherwise it's going to be the recreation of what like currently exists. The idea of reforming law enforcement is scary to a lot of people because for them, police officers represent law and order. But for many law-abiding Americans, law enforcement also represents injustice and brutality. For Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors, reform is the next step. Here she is on C-SPAN. It's become a part of American culture to have an honest, to, to push and challenge an honest conversation around racism in this country. Has it resulted in law enforcement changing their actions? Not yet. Um, and, I, and I think that's the next phase of Black Lives Matter is how do we actually shift um, elected officials? How do we actually shift the state? And really and truly challenging law enforcement and those individual officers, but also the agency itself, to change the way that they relate to black people. Nobody actually knows how many people have been killed by police officers, black, white, or otherwise. And that's because there's no national database for this. And so the police departments are really, really good at saying, we are not going to give you any information about what we're doing. And the people that are driving that are the police unions. And so when I say to folks that the biggest problem with reigning in the police is the police unions, that's why. The police unions are powerful and critically aware of how voters view public safety, especially when it comes to local elections. Elections which often determine the people who will have a decisive say in city budgets. As Vince Warren has said, budgets are an expression of our values. And for that reason, shifting how much of a city budget goes to policing has become a major focus of Black Lives Matter. Although it's, it's, it's beginning to shift now, it's hard to get elected mayor in a lot of places without the police vote. Very, very hard. It's changing in Chicago. It's changing in New York City in some of the major urban areas. But that's the power that they hold. Like you basically you have the mayor and the police chief in your pocket as the police union, because then you get all of the entire membership of the police union and their families and everybody else that considers themselves the law enforcement to vote against you if you don't say how much you love the police and that you're going to give them more money. Fundamentally, policing is a local issue, and it's at the local level that reform will occur. But racism is an American problem. And since the killing of George Floyd, there has been an alarming counter-reaction to Black Lives Matter protests. So can America be fixed? Wow, that's a great question. I don't know that America can be fixed. I believe in transformation. I believe America could be transformed <laughs> um, if we lean in, you know, like in the same way that energy isn't destroyed, it's transformed or moved from one place to the other. Transformation is possible. Transformation is, is, is very much so possible. And I think that part of the work that organizers for Black liberation, organizers for disability justice, organizers for trans justice, and trans rights. The reason that we do this work is because we believe this country can be 
transformed and not reformed, right? This country, this land could actually honor everybody that lives here. It's possible. You know, we do this because we believe, not because we have been beat down to the point that we are just cynical and skeptical, right? Like doing this work takes an incredible amount of belief and heart in the goodness of humanity and in the possibility of humanity. It's important to remain optimistic, to keep moving. But it's not just Minneapolis, and it's not just Minnesota. It's America. As we were writing this episode, Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in front of his three children. Protests erupted, and some of the protests devolved into rioting. Armed militiamen and counter-protesters arrived in Kenosha. And one of them, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, allegedly shot and killed two protesters. Blake, the man who was shot by the police in Kenosha, survived, but is paralyzed from the waist down. Nevertheless, he was handcuffed to his hospital bed. It doesn't seem like there's much to be hopeful about. On the other hand, things are changing. Thinking about the arc of history that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about, and they said that it always bends towards justice. I think that is true. And what I'm seeing is uh, there have been a number of things that have happened with this generation of organizers in Black Lives Matter movement. Thing number one was the uncompromising response to the killing of Trayvon Martin and the killing of Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland and folks that have been killed over the last five or six years. When I say unprecedented response, I mean that it was uncompromising. People took to the streets even though nobody was having that conversation. They shut down the St. Louis Philharmonic. They took over the 405 in Los Angeles. They were essentially saying, and this is a different strategy than in the historic civil rights movement, there will be no business as usual until attention is given to these issues. That is a sea change in the way people organize. And because of the idea of disruption, John Lewis calls it good trouble. I think folks nowadays call it, you know, disruption. That that disruptive aspect has forced society to confront the reality. It's almost as if the protesters were taking people by the back of the head and holding it and forcing them to look at Michael Brown's body, at Sandra Bland's body, in the way that Emmett Till forced society to look at her son during their death. That is by far, I think, the big bullet point. The second bullet point has been mobilization, so that building power within black communities to speak with a unified voice around these issues is huge. Black Lives Matter is messaging primarily to black people, even though the framework is for white people. This is about a call together for black people of all stripes, whether you're queer, whether you're uh, identified as female, gender not conforming, what have you, you are part of this movement. That is a new thing. It has not chopped up the various constituencies. It sort of put them all into a pot together and say, now what are we going to do? And then finally, the piece that they're in now has been to, their methodology has inspired massive numbers of white people massive numbers, unprecedented numbers of white people to be out in the streets in defense of black bodies. It has never happened before in the history of America. 
people that were at the March on Washington in 1963 will remember that as a watershed moment in American history. But what they were doing is that they were all gathering symbolically around in front of the Lincoln Memorial, listening to Martin Luther King speak. And that was a revolutionary act almost back in the 1960s. Now what people are doing is that they are standing in between police officers with rubber bullets, with tear gas, with batons, getting snatched up off of the streets, getting beaten in defense of black bodies. In the history of the United States, this has never happened before. This is going to be the thing that people remember. And Black Lives Matter has empowered organizations and organizers across the country. I love that um, there are so many different Black people and Black organizations all across this country fighting for the liberation of Black people in the ways that they see fit. There is no standardization. There is no one standard strategy to get us there. And we need to experiment and we need alternatives and we need to be emergent and adaptive. So who is Black Lives Matter? The movement for Black Lives are Black organizers on the ground. They are the engine behind the expressions of change that we are all moving towards. If you think about who are Black Lives Matter though, which is a different question, in some ways it's all of us. It's all of us that put ourselves at risk for just walking down the street or having or sending our kids out for a quart of milk. It's people that put themselves at risk for having those really hard conversations in public and private spaces about how racist society is and how black people are treated. It's people that are putting themselves on the front line with and for black people in the face of great state repression. That's who it is, it's really us. It's not us in the all lives matter context. It is us as long as people are dedicating themselves to black safety, to black safety. That's who we are. Voting determines the allocation of power in American democracy. And as a result, who has access to the ballot has long been a means of determining who has power and who doesn't. On the next episode of Who Is? It's Voter Suppression, featuring a conversation with none other than Stacey Abrams. A sincere thank you to our guests, Dr. Keisha N. Blaine, a professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh and president of the African-American Intellectual History Society. Miski Noor, a writer and organizer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Noor is a co-founder of Black Visions Collective. And Vince Warren, director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark and Laura Tillman are our associate producers. Welcome, Laura. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Azevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Who Is, the podcast, season two. New episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have someone or something you think we should cover, email me at sm at nowthismedia.com. sm at nowthismedia.com.